happy to get to fill in for Pastor Dan today. I'm Andy Vandeveer. I'm the student pastor over youth and college. And in case you saw somebody looks kind of like me, it's not just me that on really low sleep. Uh, it's my twin brother Joey uh, here with his kids. Uh, and uh, because we're already filling up our newly renovated space. And, and the college students aren't even back yet in full force. I thought I would do my part, and I'm going to preach a sermon on the wrath of God. <laughs> so, uh, but seriously, I think this is what he wants me to preach on in my reading. Uh, what stuck out to me the most lately is a series of passages about the anger of God. And it got me thinking, I wonder how you respond to the anger of God. Like when you read about it, are these the parts that we like to skip over and just say, oh, that's just Old Testament or that's different and move on? Or whenever there's circumstances in your life that feel like maybe God is angry with you, how do you respond to that? Do you run away? Do you press in with anger? Do you try to wiggle out from under it or just hide? How do you respond? But what Do you have an answer for the anger of God? And I'll just get to the point. The answer for the anger of God is death. And it's inescapable. You can't escape it. Even if you have Jesus. And I'm not just talking about physical death. You cannot escape it. Turn with me to Isaiah. And while you do that, I better pray. Lord Jesus. This is a big concept because you are a big God and the way that you work together your perfect perfectly just wrath and your self-sacrificial love and how they work together I don't want to do them a disservice by giving my ideas and my words to Lord Jesus by your spirit, will you take over in my heart and these words and my preparation and do with it what you will? And will you, for all of my friends and family here, will you open their hearts to hear what you have to say and let us not get in the way of this? Do it for your name's sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Okay, so let me give you some context of where we are in the story of the Bible. Go to that next one. Okay, so we start out with creation. God made images to multiply, but they sinned, and then they multiplied. So that didn't work great. And so then God chose Abraham and blessed him and said, I'm going to multiply you as much as the stars in the heaven. Did that work? Look you there. Am I high tech? 
and then they multiplied so much in Egypt that the Pharaoh said, these guys are a threat. We better make them slaves. So for 400 years, they were slaves until God sent Moses and 10 plagues to get them out of there. And before they were in the promised land, they were in the wilderness where God gave them the law. And this reads kind of like an on-location wedding on Mount Sinai where God calls them up and says, you're mine and I'm yours and here's our vows of the covenant. And in the wilderness, they finally get to the promised land. God destroys all the enemies before them. They're in the land. They have cycles of disobedience with the judges. And then they say, give us a king. So God gives them King Saul, then David, then Solomon. And then because of their collective rebellion and idolatry, he splits the nation in two and eventually sends them into exile. Now, before they go into exile, God sends prophets because they're in the land. Instead of influencing the people around them, they're being influenced. Instead of spreading the worship of Yahweh and his glory and his rule, they are falling into idolatry. And God sends these prophets as his mouthpieces to say, essentially, if you don't stop worshiping idols, so help me, me, I'm going to kick you out of the promised land and put you in a 70 year timeout in Babylon. This is the period of exile. And then after that, God sends Well, first he sends Assyria and then Babylon to take them into captivity. And then Persia takes over and he lets them return to the promised land. They rebuild the temple, but then there is this conspicuous absence of the spirit of God did not descend and fill the temple. So you're left with kind of a wah-wah for 400 years going, what do we do now? Until then Jesus arrives. So, we are in the prophet section this morning. If you look at your table of contents, go ahead and do that. If you uh, are, um, well, I'm not going to make you do anything, but if you, I think it might help. If you look at your table of contents, the Old Testament, your first 17 books are going to be history books that go from Genesis to Esther that cover this timeline right here. And then the next five are poetry books. And then your last 17 books are these prophecy books right here. And to make it simple, to tell you what's going on there, they, these prophecy, these prophets are in three different categories. Some of them, and they're all oriented around the exile. If you put a little bracket around Ezekiel and Daniel, they are, you can write exile or exilic prophets. They are during the exile, while they're there, God's encouraging them through their prophecies. And then you can put a bracket around these three at the end. These are right before your New Testament starts. At the end of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they are post-exile prophets. That's after they're back into the land, and he's encouraging them on how to rebuild and how to be faithful to the Lord. All the rest of them in two big chunks are pre-exile. This is God saying, so help me me, I'm going to kick you out if you don't repent. And so Isaiah is one such prophet, and that's where we are this morning. I hope that helped give you the context. And also to let you know, one thing all of these prophets have in common is two major messages. And one is the message of judgment is coming. And the other message is there is hope. 
and you get that in every prophecy. It's beautiful. We're going to see it uh, today is no exception in the book of Isaiah. And I am going to be focusing primarily on, go ahead to that next one, uh, these 9, 10, 11, and 12, I'm going to give you selections from those chapters. And I tried, I'm sorry, this is my best attempt at making a an outline that's not very verbose. If an outline helps you, that's where I'm going. Coming judgment slash God is just. This is God saying, I'm about to take you away into exile because of your continued unrepentant idol worship. And then temporary hope, God is gracious. That's when God is going to say, look, you're going to get to return. After 70 years is up, you get to come back. And then long-term hope, Isaiah is going to launch forward to a picture of this Messiah to come that is the ultimate fulfillment of all of their hopes and all of ours. And you guess that Jesus is the answer for them and for us. So, let's start now. That's our context. Isaiah chapter 9. Let's look at verse 8. Um, Chris, can you bring me a phone or something that has a clock on it? I forgot there's not one on the back wall now. Thank you, my love. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. And what we're going to see is because of their continued idolatry and their continued rebellion, God put them in the land and he's wanting obedience and he's not getting it. Here comes judgment. And it says in verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. It will fall on Israel and all and by the way that's the both the southern and the northern kingdom of God's people Jacob and Israel and all people will know Ephraim that's the southern kingdom and the inhabitants of Samaria northern kingdom who say in pride and arrogance of heart so he's giving us his Diagnosis of their hearts inside, there's pride and arrogance, not humility and loyalty. And because of that, uh, or actually indicative of that, is what they are saying. Here's what they're saying, verse 10. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. So, see, God has knocked down their bricks. And they said, that's fine, I'll just rebuild with better stones. He's cut down their trees, and they said, that's fine, I'll grow bigger ones. So when God wants repentance out of them, he gets resilience. And the time that you don't want resilience, that what they, he wants obedience, and he's getting obstinance. They're dug in, and they're not going to be taught by his rebuke. And it reminds me of my son, Logan, when he was a little baby. I'll, I'll just tell you disclaimer before I tell you this story because uh, the Lord has gotten a hold of my son's heart and he loves Jesus. And I love uh, getting to see what he's doing. 
However, when he was in diapers, uh, I remember the first standoff that he and I had, and he was in diapers. We had a standoff for, to see who was going to be the alpha dog. And he was walked over to, waddled over, hobbled over, whatever, toddled over to the electric, uh, the, the uh, electrical socket, the light socket. What am I Light socket. And he was reaching for it. And I said, Logan, no, no. And then he looked at me and he reached again. And I said, no, no. He reached again. I swatted his leg and I said, no. And his face curled up like this. And then it hardened. <laughs> and he touched again. <laughs> and I swatted again. I eventually won that one and uh, uh, I was just praying that there weren't bruises that would get attention uh, for people. Uh, but this is Israel. They're being corrected and they say, I continue. And that's you and I, I think, if we're honest. And here they are. Being resilient in their disobedience. And then verse 11, but. That is a contrast word, which means you can hear in record scratch or just see Barry Sanders putting his foot in the ground and going the other direction. Because it's like everything is going this way. When you see a contrast word, it's shifting. So they are hoping that through their resilience, God's going to go, oh, okay, fine. You can do whatever you want. But God is not impressed by their obstinance. It goes the opposite way. He flies right in the face of that. And it says, the Lord raises, verse 11, the adversaries of, or it could say from Rezin. That's the ruler of Syria, one of Israel's enemies. Against him, likely referring to Jacob, and stirs up his enemies. So he's sending enemies to attack the son that he loves. And he's going to surround them with enemies to discipline them in love. As it says in verse 12, the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. And underline this phrase, this is going to be the horrifying refrain for much of this sermon. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For all this, which gives a sense of even after all that, he still has more anger to pour out. And the word anger here in Hebrew is literally knows, which is strange what's going on there, uh, because whenever someone's anger is stirred up within them in Hebrew, it says they get hot of nose, and you can just see, and you've seen this before on your spouse, there's hot of nose, you're looking a little hot of nose, what did I do wrong? Uh, And Long-suffering or patient means literally long in nostril, which makes me think about, like, you've got fire in the chambers, and the long nostril is going to take a while, and you can kind of breathe through it. But short of nostril or hot of nose are Hebrew ways of saying the fierce, fiery anger of God. And even after ascending 
enemies to attack his children, it's still not turned away. And this hand stretched out still, this isn't a hand of tenderness, it's a hand to strike. Again and again, the net translates it, despite all this, his anger does not subside and his hand is ready to strike again. So, will they repent? Look at verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. They're still dug in. And so, verse 14, the Lord cut off the head and the tail, meaning the elders and the prophets. He's cutting off the leaders. And then skip down to verse 17. The end of verse 17 says again, For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 18 says, For wickedness burns like fire, and God here is going to fight fire with fire. Their fire of wickedness is going to be outmatched by his fire of wrath, and he's going to scorch them to the point of scarcity to where they are eating each other and unsatisfied. This is foreshadowing the cannibalism that will occur when they are besieged and about to be taken captive. And they are unsatisfied. And skip down to verse 21. Again at the end of verse 21. Even after all this. For all this his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. And then he says. Woe to these perpetrators of injustice. Those who take advantage of the poor. The widow and the orphan. He says woe to them. Your judgment is coming from afar. And it describes the Lord like whistling for an attack dog to come. And this is Assyria coming on with fast hoof beats that will not fail as it's described coming to attack his children. So Assyria is coming. And because of that, when Assyria comes, there's no hope. Skip down to chapter 10, verse 4. This is all that's left to do. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. That means many of them will be taken captive or they're going to die. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So this is Isaiah being God's mouthpiece, telling them of his wrath and judgment that is coming and describing the exile that's going to occur. They're going to be taken away to captivity. And even still... He's still angry. His hand is still raised to strike. So let's just talk about this a little bit. Lots of people die here. And this is right. 
this is just. And if I think, man, that seems kind of mean or unfair, I need a better view of how holy God is. Or a better view of how good I think I am. If I think that a human deserves better treatment from God. If I think just because I'm alive, I have a right to make demands of God. That I have any rights at all. Biblically, I have no inalienable rights. Especially not in relation to God. He owes me nothing. And if he created his people, created everything, and gave them everything that they need for life and godliness, and they persistently rebel, what is he to do? What is a perfect judge to do? Okay, if he's not a very good judge, if a judge winks at his nephew when he's called into court and say, you're fine, you can go. That's a bad, slimy judge. And God is a perfect, holy judge. He must judge disobedience. This is right. This is harsh treatment. And they earned every bit of it. And you and I are no different. I want you to pretend for a minute you don't know Jesus. We were born enemies of God who also choose rebellion against God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have turned astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're all guilty and worthy of judgment. We need to reckon with this. Our God gets angry. And our God is in charge. He calls the shots. He is sovereign. He is God, and I am not. And the good news is that this sovereign God, who calls all the shots, is good. (laughs) And he is head over heels for you. And for me. And for them. He has given us an answer for his anger and his wrath. And they get, the Israelites get a little foretaste, a little foreshadowing of this answer for the wrath of God here in chapter 10, verse 15. And this is starting my section, Temporary Hope, and God is Gracious. 
And we do see a little bit of hope for these people who are told over and over again, his anger is not turned away. We get a little bit of hope, but I'll tell you, it is not from his anger running out. His anger didn't run out. They get a little bit of hope. It's more like he's distracted by someone even more prideful than them. What's a God to do when you're using a tool to discipline the children you love because of their pride? And then the tool that you're using becomes more prideful than them. You've got to judge them, don't you? And look at what it says in chapter 10, verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? No. And this is what Assyria is doing. If you read a lot of what I skipped over there, Assyria is saying, I did this by my great power. I, my, I, my. And it's all the Lord using them in hopes to bring his children to repentance. It's God who is awesome, not them who is awesome. So he's going to judge them and humble them. God uses a couple of things to go to that next one. He uses a couple of nations as punishment for his children. First, Assyria here. And then Babylon's going to come along and swallow up Assyria. But these are the weapons, the tools that he uses to punish his children, to discipline his children, to bring them to repentance, but they're not having any of it. And then whenever the paddle says, I'm awesome, then he's got to use another paddle to paddle that paddle. And then later Persia takes over Babylon and it just continues. So he says, I'm going to judge Assyria. This is their little foretaste of hope. Temporary, short-lived hope. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. So that's a comparison word, just like the Egyptians. And they're going, yeah, this does kind of remind us of that Egyptian slavery. That was rough. And this is similarly very rough. And he's saying, don't be afraid. And so they can say, well, yeah, this is really rough. And how can you tell me not to be afraid? For, verse 25 says, for, that's answering the question, why or how? For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. So is this good news? Yes, you better believe it. But I don't want I just need to make an observation. Look at the difference between fury and anger. Fury comes to an end. What about anger? It's just redirected. <laughs> so so uh, and I'm not trying to say that there's a difference between his fury and his anger. I'm just saying it's not as simple as he's done being angry forever. It's as if he's got some left in the tank. Uh, we had a youth retreat out here one time. We were, did Shaving Cream Wars, and everybody was covered in Shaving Cream. I love that game. It's simple. It's uh, low prep, high impact, super prep, uh, super low prep. Everybody shows up with their can of Shaving Cream, and you just say, go. And you award prizes for the 
cleanest, the messiest, and of course the best hairstyle. But then at the end, everybody's covered. So we had, uh, we knew somebody on the in the fire department who came with their truck and got the fire hose and was spraying everybody down. And he doused everyone and had plenty for everyone around and still a ton left in the tank. And this is the feel I get here where God is pouring out his wrath on his children. And then he's like, Assyria? Okay, I got to redirect it on these guys for a little bit. But you don't get the sense that it's forever. Forever relief. More of a temporary concession. But for now, it's good. It's good news because he's turning it towards their enemy. And so, pay attention to the tree language as he's going to start chopping down their enemies. Because you're also going to see the answer for his anger comes with tree language as well. Chapter 10, verse 33. This is God paddling his paddle. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lock the bows with terrifying power, with great in the great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. So now his axe is being chopped down with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. A reference to the Lord or his spirit. Yahweh working through his servants. And here you've got all these enemies chopped down. And I get this visual of like... A tree graveyard. You remember that scene in the uh, the Lorax where you've just got a tree graveyard and it's really sad and hopeless feeling. And one of these stumps in this graveyard is Israel, because we've already read. Put a little note there to look back later at chapter six, verse thirteen. It describes Israel as a twice burnt stump that God has chopped Israel down and then burned it twice. That's a pretty hopeless scenario, except that it said there's a holy seed in the stump. And I just want you to imagine looking out over this tree graveyard and seeing this one little stump and then seeing one little sign of life. One little, it makes me think of baby group whenever the big group was destroyed and they spared one little splinter and then it starts growing. And here you're looking at this stump of Israel and look what you see. Look at chapter 11 verse 1. And this is long-term hope and Jesus is the answer. And Isaiah is going to launch forward now. He's going to use their temporary hope in getting brought back from 70-year timeout as a launch pad to say this is just a foretaste of the real deal that's coming. And he describes him with tree language also. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. 
and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. Okay, first of all, you see life from death and you have hope. Could this be the answer to him turning his anger away? Look at the clues in verse 1. First of all, you see the word fruit. And remember, Israel is described as his vineyard that kept producing sour grapes, not good fruit. The fruit he wants is obedience, repentance, and loyalty. And here, this shoot is going to, from the root, bear fruit. And also notice, we know that this shoot is coming from Israel because we just read or just referenced chapter 6 where it talks about that stump is Israel and this shoot is coming out of the stump. That's Israel and that's the stump of Jesse who is King David's father. So we know he's in the kingly line of David. And notice it calls him branch. Jeremiah also calls the Messiah who is to come the branch. Zechariah combines the two terms and says the servant, who we know from many Old Testament prophecy, the servant of God is that Old Testament, is that New Testament, sorry, is that Messiah who is going to come and set them free. And Zechariah said, combine servant and branch. And so we see all these key words as links here in verse 1 as clues to who this shoot is. And notice, because of that word shoot, I want to read or I want to show you Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2. Which you all know, many of you know, this is about the servant, the Messiah that is to come. And it says, for he grew up before the Lord. There we are. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is Jesus. This shoot of hope for them is their answer to the anger of God. And it's our answer too. One more clue that this shoot is Jesus right there in verse 2. Chapter 11, verse 2 of Isaiah See if you hear something repeated. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Did you hear it? Four times. Spirit. That's ruach. That's first we see it in Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Ruach of God hovered over the deep. The Spirit, this hovering, creative power and presence and person of God Himself, is going to rest on 
this shoot on this person. And I love that word rest because before now the spirit has come and left like for the judges and for the kings. But on this one, the spirit will rest. So who are we talking about? Isaiah 61 is again talking about this Messiah to come, this servant. And it says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news. And then this passage that I just read. That's Isaiah 61. Okay. Fast forward a few hundred years. Jesus is on the scene. He shows up to a synagogue. They hand him a scroll to read. It's Isaiah. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And on and on it goes. And then he drops the scroll and says, Today this scripture has been filled in your hearing. He says, I'm the one, the Messiah that you've been waiting for. The shoot that is the hope of Israel is here. It's Jesus. He is their answer for anger and ours too. And now, Jesus, in our past and in their future, comes as the answer for the wrath of God and he changes the refrain. The refrain that says, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still, is about to be changed. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. You will say in that day, and in that day he's speaking of when the Messiah comes, when Jesus returns. In that future day, they're going to sing this shocking song. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And so far it reads like a psalm, doesn't it? I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Why? For though you were angry. I love though is a contrast word. You were, past tense, angry with me. Your anger turned away. Thank you, Jesus. Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And now instead of anger, they get comfort. They get the exact opposite of that. And listen to the rest of this song that they sing. Verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Now, I don't know if y'all caught it, but what he just did there is he tied into and repeated another refrain that I'm going to call the Exodus song. Because it shows up three times in scripture. Take a look. Their Exodus out of Egypt, Exodus 15 two. 
The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And then as they're coming back from their 70-year time out in exile, they sing Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Sound familiar? <laughs> and then fast forward to when Jesus returns and we all experience an exodus out of sin and death, finally and fully and completely, we all sing what I just read from Isaiah 12 too. The Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. He has connected these three exoduses because their exodus from Egypt was their anchor, their bedrock, their Ebenezer for their faith that they could go back and look at and say, I know my God is awesome and powerful and delivers me. I remember that exodus when he with an outstretched arm and mighty hand delivered us in this miraculous display of his faithfulness. And they are meant to and we are meant to connect that connect the return from exile to that same miraculous display of his faithfulness. And when he returns, it's in the same category, but jumped up exponentially in importance and in glory of how awesome it is of a miraculous display of his faithfulness as he brings us through death into life. Now, how specifically was Jesus, is Jesus the answer for wrath? Remember, the only answer for wrath is death. So I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah 53. This will be our last turn this morning. Isaiah 53. This is the one that starts with talking about that Messiah to come as a tender shoot. But let's look at verse 4. It says, Surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That means we looked at Jesus punished on the cross and thought, Man, God must be mad at him because he did something wrong. No contrast, but, verse 5, He was pierced. For our transgressions. And listen to all these words related to the wrath and justice and punishment of God that belong to us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That's what belonged to us. Piercing, crushing, chastisement, and wounds. And he took the full wrath, the full anger, the full justice of a perfect, holy God. Why did God put all that wrath on a perfect son? Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And so God, the perfect judge, judged our sin on his son. All the wrath that was intended for me and you, and it killed it. But it did not 
stop him. He rose from the dead. He won the victory. And now he stands as the true and better Moses. <laughs> With outstretched arms holding back, not waters, but holding back sin and death. That if any of us would just bow to him, believe, surrender to him, and follow him, we can walk through death into life following him and be his forever. And be free from the wrath of God forever. If you want to be free from the anger of God, bow to Jesus. Come to him. Some of you think God is still mad at you. And he's got some left in the tank for you. And maybe that has something to do with the way you were raised or your church background. Maybe you think he's still mad at you and he's storing it up. And you're not on completely shaky ground biblically, just slightly off. Because you might quote to me Revelation 15.1 that talks about the seven angels with the seven plagues. Because after those bowls that come with those plagues, those seven angels, the seven bowls are poured out. That's when the wrath of God is finished. So you think he's still got some bowls for me. Or Romans 2.5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Yeah, stored up like in a bowl that's going to be poured out. And you might think that he's saving a special bowl just for you. Yes, his wrath is being stored up. But who is it going to be poured out on? Colossians 3, 6 says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, 6, let nobody deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. So the question, my question for you is, are you a son of disobedience or are you a child of God? If you don't know Jesus, if you've not given your life to him, you are a son of disobedience and you stand in your sins and wrath is being stored up for you as for all of his enemies. If you know Jesus, he's not mad at you anymore. He poured it all out on Jesus. And Jesus meant it when he said to tell us that. It is finished. He's done being mad with you. Your only hope is to not be like Logan. The young diaper version of him that when felt the rebuke, he just... Don't do that. If, you're, if you hear the word of God, or you hear this morning, the Spirit prompting you, saying, Come to Jesus. Surrender. Give your life for real this time. 
and you say, there is no hope for you. But if you have bowed to Jesus or do right now, this is you, Colossians 3.3. For you died. (laughs) You can't escape it. It's death. It's like Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You have died if you know Jesus. If you know Jesus and you're feeling condemnation and guilt, they're all lies. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's not from him if you know him. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means if you know Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And he's done pouring out wrath on Jesus. I made a road trip to Houston the other day with my son Levi, and we stopped at the Hobbit Cafe, and they had one of these little cheesy deals that uh, you uh, have the plywood painted Hobbit and Gandalf with the face hole cut out that you stick your face in and you take a picture, and uh, the illusion was not very convincing. But the idea is... When you do that, that you look and you go, oh, my imagination can kind of see that face, but it's like Gandalf and Frodo or whoever. Uh, that when you look at that, that you don't see the person anymore. You see the wizard, okay? So whenever you are in Christ and God looks at you, he's not seeing you. He's seeing Jesus. And he already gave him all the wrath he had for him and it killed him on the cross and he came back and it's done. If you haven't yet, come to Jesus. If you have, believe the truth. He's done being angry with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for changing the refrain. When there was no hope, there is hope in you, Jesus. Thank you for taking on the righteous wrath of a Holy Father. And thank you for Inviting us to share in that with you. Let us rejoice in the opportunity to die to ourselves and be reborn into you, Jesus. And Lord, thank you for disciplining us in your love, like a father who loves his children. But help us not to call it wrath anymore. We believe what you've done through Jesus and that it is sufficient. 
Help us to walk in truth and to submit to your word and what you say about it. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you and we praise you. Amen.